As we begin our study, I want to just want to ask the question, were you ever afraid of the dark? Maybe you were, maybe you weren't. I certainly was. I was afraid of the dark, and my little sister had to escort me outside in the dark when I was a little boy because she was much braver uh, and not afraid of what you couldn't see in the dark than what I was. It seems like everything gets worse at night, from sickness to our fears to anything else as well. Sometimes, uh, have you ever been able to, not been able to sleep, perhaps something's on your mind or whatever, and you just are wishing and waiting for when the day finally breaks. During World War II, there were thousands of people for many, many nights that were anxiously waiting for the break of the day. After Germany conquered Belgium and the Netherlands and France, they were hoping that Great Britain would surrender, or maybe not surrender, but make a truce. But Winston Churchill refused, and so they decided that they needed to conquer Great Britain. But in order to do that, they had to cross the English Channel, of course, and if they were going to cross the English Channel, they had to achieve superiority in the air. And thus, the battle for Britain began. Weeks and months went by. And many times every night, sometimes multiple times in the night, the German Luftwanda, something like that, would fly. And at first they were taking targets of military interest, where the planes were being built in Great Britain. But as the Royal Air Force defended the skies, they became more and more frustrated, and they just began dropping incendiary bombs and massive bombs throughout London and other places. And as they did that, the people would try to find some place where they could sleep in safety. Over 100,000, 150, 170,000 would try to find refuge in the subways, hoping that they could get a little bit more sleep. Only to emerge the next day to find rubble throughout. Some gave up trying to find a, get in a line to go down into the subway, and they just tried to sleep with the bombs breaking around them. I can imagine that they were living as the bombs were breaking around them, as they could barely sleep through the night, not knowing whether their building would be decimated next. I can imagine that they were living for the day 
hoping that they would make it through the night. That experience has been thousands of times, many places around the world, as night bombing raids happened in Berlin as well, later on in the war. As people would long for the relative safety of the day. But I can imagine that not just were they longing for the break of day when there would be a uh, decrease in the raids and perhaps an even uh, where they would no longer be raids during the daytime, but I'm sure that they were living for the day when the sirens would sound no more. When the war would finally be over and they could sleep at night. Living for the daybreak. Trying to make it through the day, through the night rather, for the day. We turn in our study today to the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Thessalonica was and still is a city in Macedonia or Greece. And it still is a prominent city, a beautiful port city. And is actually there's about a million people, I believe, that live there. It's one of the larger cities in Greece today. And Paul did not spend very much time in Thessalonica. We know that because in Acts chapter 17, we find that he went in for three Sabbath days and reasoned with them in the synagogue, but opposition arose, and he had to end up teaching in the house of Jason. We don't know much more about it. We don't know exactly how long he stayed. Probably he stayed sometime after that three-week period. But shortly thereafter, a mob was incited against Paul, and the city was in an uproar, and they sent Paul away from Thessalonica to Berea. Went down to Athens, and probably not too long after he had left, Thessalonica. Paul wrote the letters of First and Second Thessalonians to this fledgling little church that had faced opposition in the synagogue and then endured opposition from the entire community as there was this mob and this riot, so to speak, that was uh, uh, against Paul and the message that he was given. This makes 1 Thessalonians probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the first book written in the New Testament and 2 Thessalonians likely the second book written. Some say Galatians might have been before. Uh, We don't know exactly when Mark was written, but considering that this was probably written around 51 AD, probably 1 Thessalonians was the first book penned, the first book that we have record of in the New Testament. And when we read these books, we see that Paul is encouraging them and remembering the faith and the love that they had even during this brief time. But more than that, in virtually every single chapter of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is teaching them and exhorting them 
as to how they can live for the day of the Lord. And I want to look at how we are to live for the day of the Lord. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Normally, Paul gives in, in these books, Paul talks to them, gives instructions about how they're to live, and then as he does this, he then emphasizes it at the end by uh, emphasizing Jesus' coming. And he does that here in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and we'll look at a few of these verses. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice what Paul says as he writes here. He says, to declare concerning the man of entry, says how you turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven. In order to be living for the day of the Lord, it requires us to turn from the idols and things of this world. To turn and to reorient our lives. Now, it was very obvious in Thessalonica and many of the other cities of Greece and uh, Asia Minor at that time when Paul would preach there. We know we've seen, uh, at least seen pictures, some of the various ruins of the temples of the idols and the gods that they had. They were literally turning from the idols of their time to serve the living God. I, I appreciate how Paul in Acts 17, shortly after he was in Thessalonica, he comes to Athens, and actually he had gone from Thessalonica to Berea, and then the Jews followed him from Thessalonica, and he then had to leave Berea, and he comes to Athens. And you remember, he's there on Mars Hill. He's there where the all of the worship and the discussion about all of this philosophy and their gods is, and he sees to the unknown God. And Paul can't keep quiet. He says, you're worshiping the unknown God. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. He's the living God. But do we have to turn from idols today as well? What are idols today? They had the unknown God. They had Zeus. They had uh, Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. They had these gods with names. An idol is what they would give their time and their money to. 
They would go and they would bring sacrifices, they would bring offerings to these idols, and as they would go bring these sacrifices and these offerings to these idols, they were giving of their time and their means. That's still a pretty good definition of what an idol is today as well, isn't it? What takes our time and our means in an inordinate way. But there's more than that. Because when we look at Greece, Thessalonica was in northern Greece, Macedonia area. For some reason, I'm not quite sure why, but for some reason, we still study the Greek gods today. I can still remember in third grade, I believe, not sure what how old I would have been in third grade, not very old. You're in second grade, right? So I probably would have been nine or ten. Learning Greek gods. Why? It was the Greek culture. I'm not saying that's a good reason to study it today, but anyway, it was not just the idols, it was their culture. And when they turned from the idols, they were turning from the objectionable parts of their culture to serve the living God. It's a lot harder to turn from commonly accepted culture. I was studying with a lady one time. She had come to a series of meetings. This was out in Washington State. Actually, maybe I wasn't studying. Maybe it was another one of the somebody else in the church that was studying with her. Anyway, I can remember it. She had come to some meetings we had held and uh, we were reviewing, going back over, and I don't remember, it was in Sabbath school, a pastor's class or something like that, and we must have studied about the state of the dead and we got a phone call later that week and she said, you know, I've decided to stop studying. Why? said, because, actually, she just left a message, I think. I don't think we were able to ask her. But she, she gave the message. She said, my ancestry, my culture is Native American culture, and that the, what the Bible teaches about the state of the dead just goes against my culture, and I can't give up my culture. There are things in our culture that we have a hard time giving up. But they had turned from it. We have to turn from anything in our culture, no matter how accepted it is, if it goes contrary to the Word of God, we have to turn from that and serve the living God. Now, there are things in culture that do not go contrary, but there's lots of things in culture that do go contrary. And the challenge is that many times we have a hard time seeing when it's our culture, 
how it's contrary to the Word of God. Seems like it's become cultural over the last years to be very divisive. That's not acceptable according to the Word of God. To say unkind things because somebody believes different than we do. That's not acceptable according to God's Word. It may be culture. But God calls us to rise above culture. And we could look at many, many other things. But I wanted to try to get through First and Second Thessalonians here. First, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul does mention the second coming in chapter 2. We're going to pass over that. But chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notice what Paul is saying. Chapter 1, he says, looking for... Waiting for his son from heaven. Now he's saying that he may establish you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what it says in verse 12. And the Lord make you increase and abound in love. What does it mean to abound? Think of the word bountiful. Bountiful, abound, increase, grow. Paul says, may the Lord make you to increase and overflow in love. Is that a way that we are living for the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus coming? To be increasing and abounding, overflowing in love. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you abound more and more, just as you received from us how, how you ought to walk and to please God. He says abound more and more in love. Jesus said something interesting in Matthew 24. You'll remember the verse. Because iniquity or lawlessness would abound, the love of many would grow cold. So Jesus says, in the world, because of the abounding of iniquity or lawlessness, it will cause the love of many to grow cold. Do we see that happening today? Yeah. Love grows cold in our world. But the opposite is to happen for those of us that are looking for, waiting for the day. Instead of our love growing... To say the verse again. 
Because of wickedness, because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Instead of our love growing cold, our love is to abound more and more. How does our love abound more and more? Ellen White makes an interesting statement. I don't have the reference here. I'm not even going to get it quite, I'm not even going to be able to quote it quite right. But it's very interesting because it goes totally against what we think it would. We're to grow strength from others' weakness. Courage from their cowardice. Seems opposite, right? As we see the world loving less, we're to love them more. Why? Because we see that they need Jesus more and we have something that we need to give them more. Our love is to abound more and more and as the world, in the world, as love uh, grows cold, God wants the world to see his people where love is growing and abounding and overflowing more and more and they can recognize there's something that they need in there. Love abounding more and more. In a divided world, in a divided country, God calls us to be agents of healing, of his love abounding more and more. Notice something else here it says in verse 13. It says, so that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. What does that mean? Blameless and holiness, in holiness. Well, he's going to give an example here. Verses, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Let's go ahead and read these. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And he continues... God wants to sanctify us wholly. And he comes to that in chapter 5 as well. Your whole spirit, soul, and body. But apparently it seems that because of the immorality that the Thessalonians were living in, that it had permeated them. And Paul has to remind them that God calls not only our love to abound more and more, but he calls us to a higher standard of holiness, of sanctification than what is common in the world. Let's go to chapter 4. We're already in chapter 4. Let's go to verse 13 in chapter 4. Notice what it says. He's going to talk directly about the second coming. This is one of our favorite verses on the second coming, and rightly so. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. What is he saying they need here? He says, I don't want you to sorrow like others who don't have any hope. It's a very sad thing. When we discuss with those that have lost and they have no hope. 
And Paul says, I don't want you to be like that. We have hope. What is the hope? The day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, right? And so he says, I don't want you to be like others that don't have any hope. It says in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What is he referring to? It seems like they were teaching that when Jesus, or thought that when Jesus came, he was only going to come for those that were alive. And Paul says, no, you have hope. When Jesus comes, those that sleep are going to go with Jesus as well. Verses 15 through 18, we can't pass over these verses. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, we have hope. Do we need hope in this world? We need hope that a better day is coming. Maybe not in this world, but when Jesus comes. We need hope that Jesus will come from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise, and we will always be with the Lord. You cannot live without hope. And Paul presents the greatest hope. And he says, if we are living for the day, we have this hope. During those bombing raids, they had to have hope that someday it would pass. As the night seems long, we have to have hope that someday the morning will break. And so Paul says, we have to serve the living God, turn from the idols, turn from the things of this world, and serve the living God. We need to abound in love and holiness, and that abounding is a growing experience. Do you think we're ever going to come to a place where we say, Now, I don't need any more love. I have all the love that I need. Are we ever going to feel like we're as loving as we need to be? I believe because God is love and God is infinitely above us, we are going to be growing in love throughout eternity. And if we're going to grow in love throughout eternity, we certainly need to be growing in love here, right? 
serving the living God, abounding in love, growing in love and holiness and hoping for the day. Then he comes to chapter 5. And let's read from chapter 5. Our scripture reading came from chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. In chapter 4, he says, we have hope for the coming of the day of the Lord. And then in chapter 5, he says, don't let it take you as a thief. We're to be looking for it. And not only are we to be looking for it, but we are to know that this day is near. The darker it looks in this world, the closer the dawn of Jesus' coming is, isn't it? And no matter how dark and bleak it looks like, we have the hope and the anticipation that the day is coming. And he continues. What does that mean for us practically? Verses 5 and 6. So are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. What does it mean to watch and be sober? I can remember when I was a boy. When I was, my parents moved on to their land uh, when I was four. And so before that, we traveled a lot. My father was a traveling musician at the time. Still is a musician, but just not traveling. And we would be sometimes two weeks in Colorado, two weeks in Minnesota. We had a little travel trailer and we would follow along these different places. And then sometimes we would get tired of going all over the Midwest and we would stay at home in Iowa for a while. And uh, for part of this time, my dad and his band uh, toured in Mexico. And they were recording and touring in Mexico. And as they were there, they were there about four, five, six weeks, the first time, I believe. And so I hadn't seen my father for however long, and I was probably three at the time is my guess. Yeah, three because my little sister was born. And they had, they would tour, the band would tour in Winnebago, one of the uh, first motorhome type play things. And we knew what it sounded like. You know, it wasn't just a little car. <laughs> You could hear this thing coming from a ways. And they had probably flown out of Minneapolis and the Winnebago had been parked there and they were driving back down. And we knew they were coming. And we were walking the road, waiting, looking, listening 
for that Winnebago to come rumbling down the gravel road. And we were walking, trying to get closer. And I can still remember hearing this rumbling noise and hearing it getting closer and closer and thinking, oh, they're coming, my dad's coming. And we round the corner and there's a tractor driving down the road. (laughs) But finally it came. We were watching, weren't we? We were walking the road. We were waiting. We were ready. And Paul says... Don't let this day take you as a surprise. You know it's coming. Watch. Be sober. Be looking for it. Be alert. Because it is coming. And then he says, and he sometimes we 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 don't notice this, but let's read verse 8 here as well. And let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. When we talk about the armor of God, normally we go to Ephesians chapter 6, because that's the full explanation of it, or that's the uh, the biggest details of it. But here we have a little condensed. Ephesians was probably written about 10 or more years after 1 Thessalonians. Maybe Paul is developing his thoughts about the armor of God here. And he says, we are to be sober, we're to be watchful, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Now, if you remember, in Ephesians, the armor of God, what is the breastplate? The breastplate of, does anybody remember? Okay, it's the hope of sal- or it's the, the helmet of salvation. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Here in, in 1 Thessalonians, he says it's the breastplate of what? Faith and love. Isn't that what righteousness is? Faith working by love? <laughs> it's the same thing, just different words here. Putting on that armor. Armor of light. Let's go to Second Thessalonians very briefly here. Two more points. Verses 4 and 5. He writes shortly after he's written the first, uh, first Thessalonians, he writes Second Thessalonians. And notice what he says here. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Were they going through some difficulties? They were enduring tribulations. They were enduring persecution. If we're living for the day, do we have to go through some difficulties? You know, when I was reading about the Battle of Britain, they were prepared for it, and it actually, in some senses, wasn't as bad as they were expecting from World War I. (laughs) Their experience with World War I. 
They knew they were going to have to endure tribulation. And so, yeah, the buildings are shaken, the buildings are falling apart, we have to go sleep in the subway, all of that. It's just a part of a what we're going through here. It's just something that has to be done. Nobody likes difficulties and hardships and tribulations, and the Thessalonian church didn't like it either, I am sure. But Paul writes and says, if we're living for the day, we have to endure some of those difficulties. And then he, verses 7 to 10, we won't read it, but he talks about the second coming and about how God makes it right then. And then one last thing. In chapter 2, we have the description of the Antichrist, the mystery of lawlessness. And notice what it says in verse 10 of chapter 2. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They did not receive the love of the truth. It doesn't say that they did, those that are deceived by the Antichrist here, it doesn't say that they did not know the truth. That they did not receive the love of the truth. There's a difference between knowing and loving truth, isn't there? And God calls us to be shielded from the deceptions of the last days, not just to know truth, but to love truth. Knowing it is intellectual. Loving it, it becomes a part of our life. The tragedy is that many in the last days will know what God's Word says. They will know the truth. But it won't become a part of who they are. We must be changed through our belief in the truth. But Paul is pointing the Thessalonian believers and in this first books of the New Testament he is pointing our minds to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes. I am so glad that every time we say that we are Seventh-day Adventists we are stating that we are looking for the day of Jesus coming. We can never forget who we are because that is our identity. And here we find it right here in Second First and Second Thessalonians. Again and again, Paul writes to them and says, waiting for the coming of the Lord, looking for the coming of the Lord, hoping for the day of the Lord, watching for the day of the Lord, enduring tribulation for the day of the Lord, and loving the truth to not be deceived just before the day of the Lord as well. But sometimes this world can seem like a long night of waiting. But when the morning comes, when the dawn breaks, 
What a day that is. I can remember a couple long nights of waiting. I remember one night I was working with a couple uh, intern students, and uh, they were from Europe. And they'd been working with us in a series of meetings for probably a couple months, and I wanted to show them something in the United States. And so we were in Nebraska. So we went up a little bit north to South Dakota, and we went to uh, some of the the bad the badlands of the Black Hills and some of that area there. But it was November. And it wasn't the November like it's feeling like right now. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have my camping equipment and so we borrowed some. And so we borrowed a tent and we borrowed some sleeping bags but the only problem was these sleeping bags were summer sleeping bags. And we put on about all the clothes we had and tried to stay warm in those sleeping bags. But eventually, they just got up, and I don't remember what hour of the morning or night it was, and we were just walking the road, trying to stay warm, waiting for the day to come. Because it started feeling a lot better once the day came. But when the day came, what a joy that was. And in Thessalonians, God is calling us to look and to live for the day. The day of the Lord. We're in a night of waiting now. There's difficulties, there's challenges. But to look and to live for that coming of the day of the Lord. I want to be looking and living for that, that day of the Lord. Is that what you want to do as well? Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you of the promise, the hope of your soon return. And we thank you that we have this hope and this promise of the day that is coming. Help us to be living for the day now. May we be focusing our thoughts, our attentions on preparing and waiting for the day of Jesus coming. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.